If you enjoy the channel and our video content and would like to support us, you can do this in a couple of ways. You can sign up to our Patreon site, which is a monthly subscription to one of our four tiers, each giving you something different from early access interviews up to exclusive unseen footage. There's also the option of a one-off donation via PayPal, which allows you the option to donate an amount of your choice. Both options really help to keep this channel going and to continue putting out regular content for you good folk. So please take a look at aircurrentreview.tv forward slash donate and I thank you in advance. Thank you and enjoy. Welcome to the Avro Heritage Museum here at Woodford in uh, Cheshire and uh, to our magnificent uh, XM603 uh, Vulcan B2 which was uh, assembled here in 1963 and she returned in 1982. Stuff. And is the museum open just on weekends? Uh, generally speaking but we do open on Tuesdays and Thursdays for private visits that have been arranged usually schools, uh, rotary clubs, things like that. Stuff. So Trevor, when did you become interested in aviation? I couldn't actually put a precise date on that, but I must have been about eight years of age. But I didn't really get involved until I was about 10. And from the age of 10, all I wanted to do was uh, fly. What year did you actually join the RAF? I actually joined the Royal Air Force in 1961. And can you talk us through some of your uh, basic flying training and what aircraft they were on? Right, well, I'll just go back a little bit because uh, at school I went to Hornchurch, which was the aircrew selection centre in those days, for something called pre-assessment. Uh, when you were not old enough, you went through the aircrew selection and I was successful at that. And they said, fine, come back when you're old enough, which I did. Unfortunately, by then I had developed a medical issue uh, and they said, uh, sorry, but you can't become aircrew at the moment. It will resolve itself in time, but uh, not at the moment. But I wanted to join the Air Force, so I joined the Air Force and I was actually uh, on the very last national service course that went through RAF Bridge North in 1961. Uh, I was in a section of the Royal Air Force that was unbelievably small. There were less than 10 of us doing this job, which was electro-medical uh, technical work. And I was working in London um, for uh, Sir Aubrey Rumble. And uh, he was the Queen's heart surgeon. And it was a heart issue that I had. Uh, and I realized that on my ECG, the problem had resolved itself. And I went and saw him and asked him uh, if uh, he would be one of my supporters. Uh, in uh, trying to apply for aircrew again, which he very kindly did. And I went off down to Biggin Hill and uh, I then joined the, uh, well, I was already in the Air Force, but I then transferred across to aircrew. And so that started uh, basic training in 1964, stroke 65. And I first flew uh, in 1965. Wow. So what aircraft? Was it the Bulldog at the time and stuff like no, that? No, 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 no. Uh, interesting enough, I went to the flying training school at uh, Acklington, which is in Northumberland, not very far from where you come from, yeah. uh, which was uh, great fun. And one flew the uh, Jet Provost, the Jet Provost 3 and then the Jet Provost 4, uh, if I'm right. And I did my very first solo at Ooston, 
up the uh, Tyne Valley there. Very nice. So did you know what aircraft you wanted to go on to, like on the front line? I hadn't a clue. Oh, right, you didn't have anything in mind? Had not a clue. Oh, okay. I think I rather, uh, if I think back, supported going on to larger aircraft, larger than this, uh, simply because I had a, an affinity, not that I had anything to do with them, flying boats. So the flying boats had all gone out of service by then, but uh, I, I think I knew that the Shackleton was uh, uh, coming, uh, well, was, was in service. I possibly had an eye inkling about Shackleton's, but uh, nothing more than that. Yeah, it's very strange because some people had a mindset on one aircraft and other people like, I just wanted to fly, they weren't bothered, and you seem to be one of them people who just, you just maybe wanted to fly, I guess. Uh, indeed, and as you will uh, uncover from me, uh, I've flown quite a variety of aeroplanes during my career. So Trevor, when did you find out you were going to go to Vulcans? Ah, uh, well after uh, flying training I went to Valley and I was flying the Nat there. And uh, halfway through the course one was called in by the flight commander uh, and he asked uh, whether I uh, uh, had any uh, ideas about flying the Vulcan, uh, which I didn't at the time. Um, however, uh, I thought, well, why not? And so uh, that was uh, very convenient for them because that was another tick on the box. <laughs> and so when I finished at Finningley, I went off to, um, sorry, at uh, Valley, I went off to Finningley. But very interestingly, most of uh, my uh, uh, compatriots at Valley went off to Chivna to fly the uh, Hunter mm. and indeed when they all met up at Chivna my name was called out as being one of the where's Jackson um, well, no idea so uh, they discovered I was at Finningley and I was on another course <laughs> another aircraft and the rest is history as they say there you go so can you tell us what the actual role of the Vulcan was in the time you joined the force Right, um, it was the Vulcan Mark II uh, and it was the country's, or one of the uh, strategic medium bomb bombers. It uh, had a nuclear role and the squadron that I went to, we also had a conventional role. Uh, Scampton, they were very dedicated to the standoff uh, blue steel system, mm. uh, which was uh, completely different, but I went to conventional free fall uh, uh, squadron at uh, Waddington. And can you talk us through some of your ground training? I mean, that must have been quite intense for such a large aircraft and all the systems. Yes. Um, it all started off, we would mingle and we would meet up uh, and form a crew. Because Vulcan had a crew of five, two pilots, two navigators, one looking after the radar, one looking after the uh, actual navigation, and an air electronics officer. So we all uh, met up as a crew and then we started our ground training. Uh, the pilots union would do the pilots union bits and uh, SODCAT would uh, do their bits, but we would all come together. If you, you're looking puzzled, SODCAT, yeah. Society of Directional Consultants and Allied Trades. Right. <laughs> um, okay. And we would, we would join up uh, and, and do um, some of the ground training together. Uh, of course, things like dinghy drills, uh, safety drills, all that was uh, crew training. Um, and you'd go into the swing bars and jump into a, a dinghy and uh, yeah, 
have a little splash around for a bit. And then uh, it would be the, uh, the, the, the flying training. Uh, you asked about a simulator. <clears throat> I don't think there was a simulator, uh, but we would certainly have had a procedures trainer where we would sit in and go through all the checklists. Um, and then you'd start the flying training. Did you have to go through like security because it was nuclear capable? But if you were just free fall bombs, did you have to? Did, was that not part of your course? We all had to be positively, uh, positively vetted uh, by the uh, security services. But once the Navy took over the nuclear role, which was in July 1969, PV uh, sort of dropped off the radar. I think mm. from that uh, moment on. So let's talk a bit about your flying training. What would it be? What would it involve? And where would you fly? Uh, well, we were all flying out of Finningley, and you would just like any aeroplane. You would learn how to fly, how to turn it, um, the usual exercises, what to do if engine failed, uh, procedures like that, and circuit bashing. Mm. And was it? I mean, working with the crew, did that some, take some time getting used to? No, it was quite quite enjoyable. Okay. Um, uh, I remember the very first flight that we did together as a, our first solo. I mean, wow. we say first solo, there were five of us in there, of course, but it was the crew. Yeah. And uh, we were going through our pre-start checks and the radar switched on the uh, BBC radio. <laughs> so we had the BBC music being played through. And at that time, I, I'll never forget it, Shelley Mann singers up, up and away. Nowhere. Yeah, wow. and, and I mean that became you know a, a theme song for me for the rest of my life. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. So during training, do, did you get to drop any live weapons or any weapons at all? No, not during training. Uh, once you got to the squadron, that was uh, a whole different ball game then. That, then things started to happen and uh, yes, we would drop 28 pound practice bombs. Um, Eventually, you get up to the, the, the big uh, 1,000 pounders, uh, but there were not many ranges that could uh, accept those. We went out to El Adam, which was in Libya. Uh, you could go there at that time. That was in the desert, of course, and it was the one and only time we actually dropped 21 1,000 pound bombs. Um, that was in the July of 69, and Colonel Gaddafi took over in the August. So uh, that was the end of uh, bombing in Libya. <laughs> wow. So we have to talk about how the aircraft handled and what were its strengths and weaknesses. Well, very interestingly, uh, Avro were asked to build a two-seat one-third scale aircraft, the Avro 707C, which we've actually got here at the museum. We took delivery of it from Cosford in November, and we'll be putting it on display as soon as we possibly can. And that was built specifically for pilot training. But the aircraft was so docile, if I can use that word, it was elected not to use that, and people just went straight into the aircraft and flew it straight off. Um, of course, you can't see anything of the aircraft, so um, you, could, you couldn't see the wings at all. Um, uh, it, so you had this interesting uh, uh, panel in the centre of the instrument, uh, cent central panel, uh, so that you could see the position of your uh, flying controls. Um, it was, it, it was a, a lovely aeroplane to fly, though it did have its um, foibles. 
because of its shape. Um, and the company had to produce uh, systems that got over the problems. Pitch dampers to get rid of the pitch issue, um, automark trim to get over the uh, longitudinal instability, um, and your dampers to stop the uh, Dutch rolling. Mm. But of course, when you turn those off, these problems came back, so we had limitations in our speeds. I heard it was really good up high, yeah, even against like something like a lightning that could outturn like the fighters at the time. Is there any truth to that? Well, absolutely. Well, when the aircraft was first designed in... Sorry about that. <laughs> um, when the aircraft was first designed in 46-47, it was going to, it was envisaged, it was going to fly so high and so fast, it, no enemy aircraft could get near it. So there was no need for any defensive capability at all. But by the early 1950s, aircraft were going through the sound barrier, no problem at all. Yeah. And even here at Avros, they were building an experimental aircraft that could fly at 65,000 feet, doing Mark 2.5. So um, they realised that the Vulcan was going to be unbelievably vulnerable. But the aerodynamicists got together and they said, if we come up with this new wing, what they wanted to do was increase the wingspan from 99 feet to 111 feet, put a double kink on the leading edge, give it a droop leading edge, also change the power setting from 110 volts DC to 200 volts AC, change the flying controls at the back from elevons, sorry, from ailerons and uh, 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 elevators into elevons. So they all operated as uh, uh, ailerons and elevators in the ratio of five to four. Um, the, and of course they had a more powerful engine. Um, initially it was uh, 17,000 pounds of thrust each engine and then um, for the Skybolt aircraft it was going to go up to 21,000 pounds oh. of thrust. That was a lot of grunt and at high level we could outturn any fighters. They would just fall out of the sky. But of course development of um, weapon systems and aircraft meant eventually that uh, fighters didn't have to come in and get into combat. They could just stand off and fire their missiles from uh, uh, vast range and uh, we had to have our electronic countermeasures in order to uh, try and uh, cloak where we were. I always wondered why they didn't put reheat on the Vulcan. Would it just not have worked or was it just not necessary? It was not necessary at that time. However, if Skybolt had worked and it had come into service, there was going to be a Mark III Vulcan built, which would have carried four of these Skybolts, and it would have had uh, an increased wingspan, 124 feet, I think it was. Uh, they would have had increased power uh, Olympus engines, initially the engine that would have gone into TSR2, and that would have had uh, reheat. That would have been one enormous great uh, aircraft, but Skybolt didn't work, it was cancelled, and uh, that was just consigned to uh, history. What plane that would have been. <laughs> uh, yeah, that would have, uh, I mean, uh, as displays, it would have uh, oh, made yeah. a real impact. <laughs> Absolutely. Trevor, what was the Vulcan cockpit like? Was it comfortable? <laughs> it was compact. Uh, it was certainly not built for uh, comfort. Um, it was very cramped in the front, uh, uh, but I mean, it was cramped in the back for the three guys who were facing rearwards in that dark black hole. Uh, so uh, at least we could see out 
a bit, but uh, it was very restricted uh, visibility, mm -hmm. which wasn't an issue most of the time, but it could be an issue uh, in the landing configuration. Mm -hmm. Was there a wiggle room to uh, get up and stretch your legs or anything like that? Or once you're in your seat, that's it? Generally speaking, once you're in your seat, you're in your seat. However, um, on the Falklands campaign, of course, they had to swap seats over. And uh, in order to do that, they had to put the pins back into the ejection seat mm. and then swap over and then make the seat live again. Yeah, and I've been in the cockpit and it's pretty cramped, but uh, a bit of a scary place almost. Yeah, and when we went overseas, we would carry a crew chief with us as well. So um, there would be the five of us plus the crew chief, sometimes two crew chiefs. So it was, um, yeah, it was a, um, shall we say, uh, uh, uncomfortable. So what was your first squadron? I joined 101 Squadron at Waddington. We were the first Mark II squadron to join. Uh, the squadron, uh, they were re-equipping with Mark IIs because they still had the uh, Mark, I say the Mark I, it was the 1A. Uh, they were the last uh, Vulcan squadron to get rid of the 1As and that was in 1967. Did you sit QA in your time, QRA? Yes, once we had built ourselves up to be what they call combat ready, mm. we would go on to QRA and you would be on QRA for 24 or 48 hours, um, and you were on 15 minutes readiness to go to war. 15 minutes? Wow. Yeah, we had a bomber box uh, which would beep every 30 seconds to let us know that it was working, and the bomber controller would bring us to readiness state 05 or 02. 05, uh, we would go out to the aircraft in the crew bus, which we drove ourselves, um, get in the aircraft and we, well this is at Waddington anyway, we would start engines and then we'd be reverted back to readiness state uh, 1-5. Mm. Or we could go immediately to 0-2. Now that was when it became very interesting because uh, we had a button on the start panel which said rapid. You press that and all four engines started together mm. and the 0-2 referred to the fact that we could be on the runway and airborne inside two minutes. Mm. We then had to have the daily secret codes to know whether we were actually going to get airborne or if we were going to go back for a cup of tea and a biscuit. <laughs> That's crazy to think about, it's just, it's madness. Um, was the jet um, capable of air-to-air uh, uh, -air refueling in your time? Yes. However, we never practiced it. No. Um, because it was deemed unnecessary. And indeed, subsequently, the air-to-air refuelling probes were removed from the aircraft. And of course, the Falcons campaign, mm. uh, that was in 1982, the aircraft didn't have refuelling probes. Nobody had actually practised refuelling and they needed all the stuff to be reinstated. So in a very brief period of time, uh, the aircraft were re-equipped. If you read the books, uh, 607, it's a very interesting story of how they managed to get it all back up and running. But of course the crews didn't have time to do any practice. And so for the Falklands campaign, um, they introduced uh, Victor Tanker uh, instructors into the right-hand seat to actually do the refuelling uh, on their way down to the Falklands and uh, on the way back. So did you ever fly on any large exercises? 
Uh, we were exercising all the time. Um, generally speaking, uh, they would be uh, generation exercises and we would go to our dispersal airfields around the country and then fly off, do simulated attacks and then back to base and that would be it. Mm -hmm. Large scale NATO exercises, I don't think I was actually involved in any of those. A lot of those happen subsequently. We would go out to Australia and get involved with the Australians or we would go out to America and get involved with the Americans. Um, so, but um, it was not until subsequent flying uh, different types of aircraft that I got involved in the large scale NATO exercises. Mm. And when you said you went over to America, did you ever talk to the B-52 crews and maybe swap notes or anything like that? Ah, well, uh, they used to call us the four-engined uh, uh, fighter. <laughs> that, compared with the B-52, yeah. we, we were rather impressive. And uh, it was great fun going over to the States and uh, doing an air display inside the boundaries of an airfield, whereas the B-52 would be a fly past and then several hours later return. Very <laughs> true. So how do you think other nations viewed the Vulcan? Uh, we never really uh, got into that. Uh, we went out and operated with the Australians and, and they were very impressed with it because we were doing air defence exercises with them and uh, it was the only form of uh, air defence exercise that they got amongst, apart from when they were playing amongst themselves. Mm. So. Uh, yeah, because I heard a few stories, uh, interviewed a few Buccaneer guys, and when they went to Red Flag, the Americans didn't even know what the Buccaneer was. They were just like, what is that thing? It looks really old. And I was just thinking maybe the Americans view the Vulcan maybe in that way. Or The, the Americans are really quite insular. Uh, they don't see anything beyond their boundaries, I think. That's the answer. Um, uh, but yes, the, 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 we, uh, we held our own. Um, and indeed, we were on the Vulcan, um, th they were involved in the bombing competitions, the giant voice competitions, and indeed, um, once uh, the, uh, the squadrons realised the way to win a competition, uh, the Vulcans certainly went and uh, wiped the board. Brilliant. That's great. So you probably have many, but can you share maybe a few memorable stories from your time flying the Vulcan? Ooh, let's see. Um, well, uh, one interesting was when we were flying back from um, Australia back up to Butterworth in Malaysia. The tropopause over the UK is about six miles high. Mm. Out in um, the tropics, it's 11 miles high. So you can go rather high in the Vulcan. And on this particular occasion, we were coming back from Darwin up to Butterworth. And we thought, well, let's just see how high we can go. So we got rather high. And we had um, a Scottish air electronics officer who happened to have his bagpipes with him. And he decided that he would like to claim the world altitude record for bagpipe playing. So we hear this screeching sound from the back. I happen to have a didgeridoo and I say, well, let's claim the world record for didgeridoo playing. <laughs> and so we had a little go and that was it. And then we thought, well, if we do write to the Guinness Book of Records and tell them actually how high we've been, um, the Royal Air Force won't be very impressed when they discover how high we have been. Um, 
and we won't have much of a career in the Air Force. So uh, we decided to remain quiet about that, but just unofficially claim the world altitude. But record. you know on yourself you did it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, you see, we, we were all wearing partial pressure breathing jerkins, and we had the Taylor helmets on as well. So. Oh, the Taylor, wow. Is that the one that looks like almost like a space? Um, That's right. Yeah, well, yeah. in the early 1960s, the, uh, the Air Force did actually do some experiments with almost a space suit, mm. uh, but they realized that they didn't actually need to go that high. Uh, or whatever, and uh, abandoned the idea. But some of the kit, of course, still remained on. So how many hours did you get, and did you enjoy your time on the Vulcan? Uh, the, the years that I was on it, I must have accumulated about uh, 1,200 hours. Wow. Um, excuse me. <clears throat> it was... Um, yeah, it had its moments, uh, but there were, there were lots of periods when uh, one was... Uh, doing other things, simulator training, uh, target study. Um, uh, so uh, at Waddington, we had centralized servicing, uh, which meant that when you went out to fly, uh, you didn't know, particularly know which aircraft you were going to get. Mm. So um, interesting enough, there were 88 of the uh, Mark IIs that flew uh, of the 89 that were built, because they used one for fatigue testing here mm. at Woodford. Um, I looked through my logbook and I've actually flown 54 of them, uh, including the two that we've got here. That's impressive. So, uh, and before we wrap up the Vulcan part, did uh, in your time flying, did, was there any upgrades or was it the same from start to finish on your time? Well, during the 60s, uh, of course, being the um, strategic bomber, uh, it was had cash thrown at it, really. Right. So, there were upgrades all the time. But once the Navy took over uh, the uh, uh, deterrent capability, money dried up. And so <clears throat> there were very few um, modifications that came in. And by the uh, late 1970s, the aircraft had become so long in the tooth, um, it was uh, pretty vulnerable. But it soldiered on, of course, until 1982, when they were all being taken out of service, and then the Falklands kicked off, and suddenly, um, in its twilight, um, it was involved in what was then the world's longest conventional-range bombing raid um, in the world. Mm -hmm.